Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. A terrific guest today is the CEO of an award-winning charity and a social campaigner, Nick Buckley, MBE. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you very much. It is great to have you here, Nick. Before we get into your story, which a lot of our audience are going to find very interesting, I think, uh, just tell everybody, who are you? How are you where you are? What is the journey that leads you to be sitting here talking to us? Um, that's a 50-year journey. So kid off a council estate um, in Manchester, in South Manchester. Um, went, to, went to a failing school. Uh, didn't do really well with my exams. Um, didn't go to university. Um, did a lot of traveling around the world. I think that really changed me who I am. Then I got a job with Manchester Council. Um, started looking in different roles in there. Started working with young people, trying to stop them getting involved in crime and antisocial behavior. And then when the cuts came in 2011, austerity hit, I took redundancy and used that money to invest in a charity. And I set up my own charity to carry on working with young people on the streets to stop them getting involved and making poor decisions. Um, and then June this year, um, I did some blogging and I did a blog on Black Lives Matter because they'd just come to the fore. Nobody knew who they were. So I went on the website, had a bit of a read and was quite shocked about what it said on their website. So not rumours, not gossip, mm. what they put themselves on their website. And I thought, I don't know anybody knows any of this. So I wrote a six, 700 word blog. Um, really talking about their website and what was on their website. Um, and that hit the fan. People thought I was a racist, a Nazi. Um, and when you think I've spent 20 years working in the most challenging neighbourhoods across Greater Manchester, working with thousands, tens of thousands of young people and helping, supporting them, and everything just turned sour overnight. Um, there was an online petition to have me fired from the charity I set up and founded. That got 450 signatures. There were some other email complaints went into the board who I appointed. So a lot of them were my, our friends with and I appointed for their skills. I was then summarily sacked by email. Um, and then I mounted a fight back. I thought, I'm not having this. You know, if, if you knew me, you would think to yourself, you wouldn't take Nick on if you weren't completely sure that what you're doing was right. So I mounted a comeback. The online petition got 18,000 signatures compared to the form of... To get you reinstated. Mm. To get reinstated. Mm -hmm. um, got some press attention with the mail on Sunday. And then I had a solicitor's firm involved, um, free of charge, called Keystone Law. Um, excellent. Um, <laughs> We're going to need them. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I highly recommend uh, Jeffrey Davis. Uh, fantastic. They looked at my case. And within a few hours went, They've made so many mistakes here. Mm. Mm. Um, a week later, reinstated back at the charity I founded. And the Free Speech Union, very helpful, I believe. Free Speech Union were fantastic. Um, it's the only organization I've ever joined. So I've never been a member of a political party, any other union. I think the only things I've ever joined is a local library and blockbusters for your younger viewers. <laughs> the older viewers will <laughs> yeah. know what blockbusters is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then I joined the Free Speech Union in June um, and they, they were amazing. They were, I, I'd recommend anybody if... If you like talking, join the Free Speech Union because you don't know when you need them. Yeah. And you, you're contributing to their coffers and they're going to help people like me. When I did, I never thought I was going to need any help. It was my charity. I set it up. I appointed the board. Um, I, I got an MBE for it. 
I'm not going to get cancelled. Mm. How little did I know? Well, that's the great thing about nowadays is that anyone can be a Nazi. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, we've, there's everything. Black, white, Nazis, white Nazis, Jewish Nazis. It's incredible. Anybody you don't like is a Nazi. Mm. Yeah. I got poor service in the shop one day. I'm convinced they were not. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, uh, let's get into it a little bit. So, first of all, it just boggles the mind because as comedians, we can understand we make a bad joke, we say something wrong, we haven't really done anything with our lives, we're sort of useless, we just talk. So, if we get cancelled, it's sort of par for the course, you expect it, blah, blah, blah. But you're someone, 20 years, you've spent working with disadvantaged kids helping them make a better lot for themselves, right? Having yourself come from a very difficult background yourself, yep. right? Uh, you work your way up, you start a charity with your own redundancy money. You get an MBE. It's your own charity. And you say something in public, which is factually based about the BLM organization. And then you just, you're sacked from your own charity. That's got to... It's unimaginable, isn't it? Up to the email arriving in my inbox, mm. it was unimaginable. It's, I'm still in shock now. Mm. You know, the last couple of months, I, I'm still in shock. And you know, it's deeply affected me as well. You know, it's affected my relationships. It's affected how I view the people on the board who, who I class as my friends. You know, I'd known one of them 15 years. Um. And I don't particularly blame those individuals. I don't blame individuals. You know, I put, you know, I put them in a very difficult situation with, with that blog, even though that wasn't my intention. That's what I did because I take personal responsibility for this. No one else did this. I wrote the blog. I posted it. So I need to take responsibility for it. And I still look at those individuals and they were still wonderful individuals the day before they sent that email. So therefore, they're still wonderful individuals now. They just weren't up for a fight. And that's the only difference. So I don't want to fall into the trap that other people do. You know, they're nasty, they're evil, they're left-wing commies. They were just nice people, just weren't up for a fight. Yeah. And the question I'm really interested in asking is this. What were your criticisms of BLM, of the BLM organisation? I'll make that overt. What in particular did you yeah. disagree with? So I think first thing I need to tell you why I wrote it. Because I didn't write this because I had spare 10 minutes and I'm always sticking my nose into other people's business. And I, you know, I've never commented anything around Extinction Rebellion, who I don't support. But Extinction Rebellion doesn't fall under the remit of my charity of what we're trying to do, what we're trying to achieve. So I wouldn't comment on that um, because I'm not an expert. But when I read Black Lives Matter and what they were talking about, which I'll get into in a minute, I thought to myself, this philosophy and ideology is going to damage the lives of the young people I've spent 20 years trying to help. It's hard enough being brought up in the inner city. It's hard enough being brought up in poverty. Without having a national movement, an international movement telling you that you're a victim, that the police are out hunting you down every night, that the reason why you fail is because you're black, you're brown, because you're Muslim, because you're this, because you're a woman. And I know a lot of young people, and it's quite tempting. And I, I was I was one of those. That's why I've only been doing this for 20 years, and I'm 52. So what did I do for the other 30 years? I wasted my life. That's what I did. So I know how easy it is to get distracted. So if we're giving young people a solid gold reason not to try in life because 
what's the point? I'm black. What's the point? I've been told by all these politicians that, you know, I'm a victim. Then I'm there going, no, you're bloody not. And don't listen to them because that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you think you're going to fail in life, I guarantee you're going to fail in life. And success is what you make it. Success isn't you're going to be an international footballer. The odds are you're not going to get that. But you can judge what success is. And success might, might be stacking shelves at Asda and having a, a legal job that pays the rent and you can have a wife and kids. That's success. But also if you want to be a doctor or a nurse, or it doesn't matter. Sort out yourself what success is and then aim for that. Because we're not all going to be brain surgeons or or footballers, so, so you deem what success is. And when I read what they wrote on their website about dismantling, not, yeah, dismantling the nuclear family, that's the biggest problem we've got in these cities. No bloody fathers. And they want to dismantle the nuclear family and break it down. And then you read they want to defund the police, which means abolish the police. I don't know anybody who wants to abolish the police. You tend to have police where we have crime. And the poorest people in the poorest neighbourhoods are the biggest victims of crime. Not the leafy suburbs. It's the people living in the inner cities. And all of them, someone who speaks to a lot of them, they all want more police, not less police. We've seen what happened in America when all of a sudden the police disappear. You know, gun crime goes through the roof, violence goes through the roof. Look at New York City at the moment. I think homicides have increased two, three hundred percent, something like that, over the last few months. And we're telling the poorest people and the people who need the most and the most protection that we're going to abolish the police for you, mate. And I'm reading all this on their website and I'm thinking, they're either nutcases, but I've read some more and thought, they're not nutcases, they're Marxist. This is the way to tear down our society and our culture and our country, especially when they say we want to overthrow capitalism. But what does that mean? Well, there's only one option from capitalism, and it's socialism, which means communism. And we tried communism maybe a dozen times last century. We Not, gave it a really good go, mate. We gave it a really good <laughs> yeah. go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Your ancestors gave it a really good go. Yeah. And did it work anywhere? No. All it le left was tens of millions of bodies. And capitalism isn't perfect. You know, capitalism... It's, you know, what the church will say, it's, it, it's the work, it's the, the worst, best system we've ever come across at the moment that we've developed at the moment. It's not perfect. You know, and capitalism, that's a tendency of leave, you know, the poor and the vulnerable stacking up at the bottom. And that's the people we need to help. So we need a compassionate capitalism. We don't need to tear all this down and try again a failing system that never works anywhere else. So I read this and I thought, this is going to destroy everything I've spent two decades trying to change across Greater Manchester. And that's why I wrote the blog. I thought people need to know about this. Not because of me and my big mouth, because it's going directly against what the charity was set up to do. To help the exact people, this is going to damage. And that's why I wrote the blog. So let's talk about that. You talk about, I can't remember the exact phrase, and I don't think it's about di dismantling the nuclear family, but something about disrupting the nuclear family yes. requirement or some shit. But they basically they want to live in massive communes yes. or, or whatever it is. Um, you talk about the inner city. Let's start with with the the rise of the single parent household. 
what sort of impact on the young people that you work with would having more single parenthood have for those people? So if we go to my experience, my personal experience, single parent household, uh, mum did a fantastic job. Um, we had no money, but I knew I was loved. I had been known, a nice, happy family growing up. And all my friends had dads. So, you know, we're looking at 30, 40 years ago. And if you'd have asked me then, do I miss having a father? I had no memory of my father. You know, I think we left when I was two. And the answer would be, no, I've, I've not missed it at all. You know, there's nothing I could have got extra out of it. But then the first time I realised I had missed out, I was 23 years old, sat with my friends in a beer garden in Manchester one summer's day, having a drink, and everyone's talking about shaving. And someone just bought the new Gillette shaver or bought this or mm. bought that. And we're all talking about shaving. And they all said they shaved the way the dad taught them to shave. And when it came to me, they said, how do you shave, Nick? I went, oh, I've got an electric razor. Oh, why do you use electric razor? And I said, well, I looked in some drawers once in the house when I was 14 and found an old electric razor and I started shaving with that and I've shaved with it ever since. And it was at that conversation I realised, oh, I have missed having a father in my life. Not dramatically, it wasn't, you know, a life-changing thing. And then I started thinking, if, if I missed out on that, what else have I missed out on to help me, mould me into being a man, to having, um, you know, inspiration to trying to achieve something and the answer is I don't know because you don't know what you've missed when you don't know it was there so taking that forward now to young people in the inner cities when I meet young people there's I've got two ways of knowing if they're vulnerable to making really poor choices in life the first one is the failing education so if I'm talking to young people and they're saying they hate school they're never in school they've been kicked out of school is a huge warning sign to me because I know they're vulnerable now to being pulled into criminality, making negative choices. And the other warning sign is I've no father at home. And if you've got both of them, then, you know, you're extremely vulnerable to making poor choices. We really underestimate as a society. Um, and we, we don't even, we don't, we're not allowed to talk about this because if you talk about this, it's as if we're attacking single mums. And I'm not attacking single, single mums do an amazing job under so much pressure and stress. What I'm saying is they'd be under less pressure and stress and have an easier life if we had the father there. And who I'm blaming are the fathers. I'm not blaming the single mums. I'm saying to men and boys, how dare you knock somebody up and it's your child and you take no responsibility ever for your child then how dare you do that? This is your flesh and blood growing inside. You know, this woman who's then going to give birth, it's going to be your child who's then going to have other children and you don't want to be part of their life and you don't want to provide for that child and be a man and take responsibility. How dare you not want to do that? And you're going to leave it to the state to bring up your child. I'll tell you what, the state will do a bloody poor job mm -hmm. of bringing up your child, a poor job. You need to get some responsibility and you need to raise your own children. That's what you need to do. And that's aimed at the men, not at single mums who do a good job under hard circumstances. I want them to have more help and support. And it's the men as a society we need to be going after and saying, just like we used to do with drink driving. When I was a kid in the 70s, 
I always went to my uncle's car who was drunk and we drive us home. And we all knew he was drunk and it was acceptable. Mm. Now, mm. you'd phone the police if you knew someone was driving someone's kids home. You'd phone the police. And that's what we need to do with men who are not taking responsibility for their children. Children need a father and a mother, in less exceptional circumstances. If, if your dad's a violent, murdering paedophile, do you know what? You'll do better in life without having a relationship with him. Mm. So that's a caveat. But on the whole, children need both parents. So that BLM recommendation, not constructive, not helpful. Mm. And that's disastrous. That's disastrous. Okay. Yeah. So let's go to the next one, which is abolish the police, defund the police. Now they say defund means something else. There's a lot of bullshit, but then there's a New York art- New York Times article comes out where they go, no, no, we mean abolish yes. the police. So let's take them at the word, abolish the police. What would be the impact in the inner city like Manchester of removing the police officers who are there and replacing them with quote-unquote social workers. What would be the impact of that? Well, first of all, I spent nearly a decade as a community safety manager for Manchester Council. And every residence meeting I went to, every victim of crime I spoke to, in the inner cities, lots of them being me, would all say, I want more police on my street. Where are the police? I want more police. Not one person ever said to me, do you know what, Nick? Sick of seeing, I'm sick of seeing police around here. Not one person's ever said to me in the decade I worked in the crime field at Manchester Council, everybody wants more police. It makes you feel safer. If we reduced the amount of police, and we have done across Great Manchester, I think we've lost over 2,000 police officers in the last decade because of austerity. The Met has lost a hell of a lot more than that. If you take police out of those neighbourhoods, you're basically handing it over to organised crime and you're handing it over to dysfunctional young people who commit low-level crime and antisocial behaviour and will run amok. I remember growing up on a council estate 50 years ago where antisocial behaviour and low-level crime was not only every day, it was culturally acceptable. I remember some kid running across my street with half a leg of lamb, half a, half a lamb, because... Someone was delivering meat to local butchers. And as he popped in, this lad jumped to the back and picked up half half a sheep and ran on with it. And everybody knew who'd done it. No one said anything. It was all acceptable. We've got away from that now because it looks like a victimless crime, but there is no victimless crimes in society. And if we remove police from these areas or just reduce them, antisocial behaviour will go through the roof. Low-level crime will go through the roof. And then we'll have organised crime taking over. And what we'll have then is then we'll have vigilantes. You know, we'll have organised crime walking around going, I'll sort that burglar out for you. And they might not even be the person who burgled your house, but they'll get a good idea and we'll stab him because we thought it was him. And that's not how we want to run our society with, with lawlessness and vigilantes and gangs running our neighbourhoods. We need more police, not less police. We, there's an argument for better policing. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. I'm, you know, I've trained police officers in community engagement. You know, I did, did that for several years, every now and again, working with Great Manchester Police. Police need, you know, to improve their training. I'm sick of police. You see it on TV. Those TV shows drive me mental. If I hear one more police officer speaking to a member public and calling him mate, All right, mate, what are you doing tonight? All right, love, you know, calm down. Don't be drinking. T-. Excuse me. You call him sir and you call her madam. You don't call them mate and love. 
if someone from British Gas turns up my, my house, I want them to call me sir. I'm paying for service here. I'm not your mate. Be professional. And so we can improve the police and they need to, you know, we need to raise their game. On the whole, they're fantastic. I'm a big supporter of the police, but they can be improved. So we can improve and help train the police better. But reducing them and getting rid of them is absolutely, it's, it's, I can only say it's the craziest idea I think I've ever heard. I like that because halfway through it sounded like you were giving him a bollocking. <laughs> so <laughs> which I, I deserve, to be yeah, fair. Yeah, which you do deserve, which I, I very much enjoy. Now, we, I think pretty much everybody who looks at these ideas knows that they're crazy, knows that they are fundamentally unworkable. So why have we got into this position where they have become impossible to criticise? Do you remember the documentary the BBC did on Black Lives Matter when they went into the background of who they are and how they set up? No, we didn't see it. No, no I no. don't. Did you see it? I don't think I no, no. no. Does it exist? That's why no one knows what Black Lives Matter stands for, because not one reputable mainstream media organisation has looked has done a half-hour documentary into Black Lives Matter. That's why nobody knows about it. As simple as that. I speak to my friends. My, all my friends, up to me educating them, think Black Lives Matter is just a movement that came out of racism in the UK. And I say, it's an organisation. They have a website. They've collected millions of pounds. Have they? I didn't know that. Well, these are some of their views. I never knew that. Well, how would they? Unless they've got the time and the inclination to do some research, which most people haven't, then the mainstream media have completely let us down. Where, where is the documentary about who Black Lives Matter are? I'm not saying attack them, but a factual BBC panorama horizon Newsnight type of documentary. This is Black Lives Matter. Started six years ago in America of a shooting of some black young person who said he had his hands up. It turns out he didn't have his hands up. Mm. All the way through now. And let's have a proper factual documentary, but no one's made it. And the mainstream media don't want to make it. So we're kept in ignorance. They're scared. I mean, this is why you say people aren't educated, but... There are also people, and I can tell you this from personal experience, in the media, high, higher up in different echelons of different organizations. You talk to them, you sit them down, and you go, you know, here's the fact about this. This is what they propose. This is, and they go, hmm. And then they don't say anything. Yes. Because they know the punishment, as you now know the punishment. Yes. Which is if you make these perfectly legitimate observations. I mean, you say they say so themselves. The found one of the co-founders of BLM said in 2015 that they're trained Marxists. Yeah, I saw the video with her yeah. talking about right. it. Right. So it's not a secret. Yeah. It's not a secret. There's no secret about it, but a lot of people simply don't want to say that that's what's happening and therefore they'll pretend they don't know. It's a bit like Father Christmas and Easter Bunny. <laughs> we know it's made up. We know it's crazy but we're not going to go around saying it's all made up and crazy because it might upset the people who still believe in it. We call them children. So we don't want to upset them. And if you've got the big directors at those big organisations, who know the truth. They're not stupid. They've already looked into this. But you're right. They're seeing what's happened to people like me and other people, and they're thinking, I don't want to lose my quarter million pound year job and my amazing pension for saying something that I know people don't want to hear. This is my job. And 
Nick, did you have any idea of the hot water, hot water you were going to get into by writing this blog? Or did you think it was a legitimate criticism and you were just going to go about your day? I thought there would be some criticism because it's social media. You know, I, I, could, I, could, I could put on social media my date of birth. Somebody would criticize <laughs> So there would be some criticism. Yeah. Um, did I think it'd be anything like what happened? No, because, you know, would I have posted it if I had, if I'd have known? I really don't know. I'd like to think I would. I'd like to think, yes, I would. But that'd be need, that, that's far too easy an answer. Would I have posted it knowing that the turmoil and, you know, the, the hurt and, you know, just what I've been through, would I have done it? I've, I really couldn't answer that. But no, I didn't expect it to go batshit crazy like it did but do you regret posting no, no. Wh why not um because i believe i was right and i believe i've been proven right and i believe if i'd have posted that blog today it made no waves i agree mm. i was ahead of the curve yeah. yeah and if you're trying to be a leader in any field you're in and if you're trying to improve the lives of people you care about then you need to do what's right not what's convenient. And it was right at that moment in time for me to try to educate whoever was following me on social media about what I discovered. I didn't know. I discovered it and went, people need to know about this. So I then tried to educate and inform other people. So I don't regret doing it at all. And so you say that you don't regret doing it. And you look at the government's handling of BLM. I personally think it was weak. What handling? Exactly. So what, what are your criticisms of the government? Do you think they handle well? That's the, biggest, that's the biggest problem we've got. Um, I can only say I've never been so disappointed in the government than the one we've got at the moment. I voted for this government. And not because of policies, not because of COVID, because let's be honest, we're all making COVID up as we go along because no one knows what they're doing. Yeah. But just everyone, every country is doing the best what they think is right, because when they've had this before, so I'm not even blaming them for that. All of us, you know, we have, we, even now, where's the leadership? When they're pulling down statues and graffitiing, you know, the Churchill statue and attacking the police. And I can't, I can't, I can't name one politician who stood up and went, no, 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 not in this country, not today. And not while I've got my seat in Parliament. If you don't like what I'm saying, vote me out. Because I'm going to say what I believe. Vote me out if you, don't, if you disagree with me. But I'm having none of this. The whole country was begging for someone to, to stand. Boris Johnson was on death's door. So he still could have done more, regardless. You know, we had a World War II pilot with no legs, flying spitfires. So just because... You know, you're ill or you've lost it. doesn't mean you still can't do anything. You still should have done more. I'm extremely angry and disappointed with our government about how they did nothing, how they made everybody else feel. I better say nothing because even the government's afraid of the mob. And if they're afraid of the mob, I work in Tesco's. I work in a factory. I don't say anything. And I better put that BLM postman window. I better start making those fist salutes. I better start putting a black square on Instagram. Because if government's afraid, then I need to be terrified 
and they really dropped the ball. Absolutely dropped the ball. I know an actor who uh, was forced by her agent to put a black square on, on mm. their Instagram mm. because if you don't, you're going to lose work. Yes. Mm. So that terror you're talking about, and you're right, I think it rose all the way to the top, all the way to the top. But coming back to you and your situation, it sounds to me like the, the people who sacked you from your own charity, they didn't do it because they were sort of ardent BLM <laughs> marchers who'd been out there protesting. They did it for likely the same reasons that people were doing everything else, which is, this is scary, we're going to get punished, this looks bad, and they just didn't want to make the stand that you did. Yes. It was a sort of soft cowardice, you might say. Possibly. I mean, I'm putting it quite in strong terms. I yeah. don't, I'm not attacking the people. Yeah. I'm just saying they were unwilling to make a stand, let's say. Um, was that it? That was, was that the extent you think of it? Yeah. They just didn't want to deal with the trouble. Yeah. Uh, but why fire you then? Why not just like say they don't support you? Why, why would they sack you from your own charity? Again, a lot of this comes down to COVID. Months and months being locked away. Mm. Mm. All of us hypersensitive. All of us spending far too much time on social media because we've got nothing else to do. Um, if there's been normal times, I think the email would have been, Nick, we all need a face-to-face here. It's COVID. So there was no face-to-face. Um, they were probably looking at the charity and thinking, we've got lots of corporate supporters and they're probably looking, some of these corporate supporters are actively supporting BLM. They're not happy. And my answer would have been, I don't care. I set this charity up. They can pull their money. It's not a lot of money anyway. But I'm not sacrificing the futures of the young people on the streets just so we can get a couple of extra grand off this corporate because I'd, I'd take a pay cut. I'll, you know, we, we, we can save the money somewhere else. I'm not selling my soul and what I believe just for an extra couple of grand because we're damaging young people that the charity was set up to help. And that's what I always came back to. And that's all the decisions I've made for the charity was, is this decision the right thing for those kids on the streets? Because if it is, well, we make that decision. Is this this, the best decision for me to get a pay rise? Well, I shouldn't be answering that question. The question always should be about young people we're trying to help. And they probably looked at many things. I'm guessing I wasn't in their mind. I didn't even sit down and have a conversation with them. Um, they they panicked. They saw some complaints come in. They saw the 450 signatures, which at the time seemed a lot of people. <laughs> 450 people all want Nick sacked. These people are saying he's a Nazi, he's a racist. Some of these people are obviously black. Look at the faces on Twitter. They must know what they're talking about. So we've got to let Nick go. And how did it work? Did you have any inkling that you were going to get fired or did you simply walk into an office and then it get delivered to you there? Emails. It was all over email. So you got sacked from your own charity via email? Yes. Immediate. Immediate. I mean, the effect on... And did you have any idea that this was going to happen? No. So effectively, you got an email out of the blue, firing you from your own charity that you set up. The effect on you must have been devastating. The first week, it's hard to admit, I was a beaten man the first week. Because I walked out and went... You idiot. You in your big mouth. When will you ever learn to keep your mouth shut 
That's all I was saying to myself. People are laughing at you now. Those 450 people are definitely laughing at you. People you've worked with, other agencies, other charities, they're all laughing at you. Who does he think he is? He was always spouting off in meetings. He was always saying we could do better. He was always saying our plans were wrong. And look at him now. Mm, yeah. So I'm well glad that. I'm, that's what I was thinking. Uh, the first week I was a beaten man, absolutely. I look back now and I think, oh, I couldn't have got any lower. And then the second week, I got a phone call off a friend who said, what are you doing, Nick? I said, what do you mean? Friend? You've not replied to anybody. Not one email, not, not one anything on social media. You've not challenged anybody. You know, they're calling you Nazi here. You've not even come back, even with an insult to them. <laughs> You've just accepted it all. And it, as if you're guilty. And we all know you're not guilty. Why, why are you lying down? Because I was beaten. So I went to bed that night and that was, I didn't sleep. Um, that's all that was going on in my head was, was, was that conversation. And I woke up next morning and I thought, right, the least I can do now is fight back and clear my name. Probably won't get my job back, but unless I clear my name, my next step in my life is going to be a lot harder because it'll be, do you remember Nick? Oh, Nick the Nazi. And I thought, well, I can't, that can't be around my next, rest of my life. So I thought, at least I need to fight back. And then coincidence happened in life, you know. I, I've always had a lot of good luck. I always argue, is it good luck? Or is it the fact that I was willing to take an opportunity that arose? So I don't think it was luck. But anyway, that morning, knock on the door, open my front door. Hi, I'm a reporter from the Mail on Sunday. <laughs> Can I have a chat? And I went, just a man. <laughs> Can you get the kettle on? Can you get the kettle on? <laughs> so uh, it wasn't that flippant. I went, come in, I need to properly think about this before... I do an interview and I wasn't that flippant. Um, so we had a good chat, gave an interview and I thought, well, that, that's the beginning of the fight back. Let's get some national press on this. Um, and then one of the former trustees of the charity phoned up and said, I can't believe what's happened. Um, he said, do you mind if I set up an alternative petition to get you reinstated? Because I don't want to do it without asking you in case it makes things worse. I went, no, do it. So he set that up. Um, and then I went on the offensive. Um, as much press I could do. Um, I talk radio quite a bit. Um, lots of stuff on Twitter and Facebook. That was generating lots of complaints then to the charity board to say, why did you sack this man? So all of a sudden, I flipped the pressure. Pressure wasn't on me anymore now. The pressure went back onto the board of the charity. Why have you done this? What was the formal reason for sacking you? Formal reason was bringing the, I think it was three points. Never mentioned the blog. So three points were something like bringing the charity in disrepute, spouting political ideology, um, and breaching charity commission guidance. It's interesting. Do you think that if you'd made a statement in support of Black Lives Matter, do you think that would have been regarded as spouting political opinions? No, because almost every charity before that was all supporting Black Lives Matter. That's interesting, because I would imagine that's sort of a political position as well, isn't it? If it's a political position to criticise, then it's a political position to endorse. Right. It turns out, when you read the Charity Commission guidance, none of that comes under their definition of political. It's about supporting British political parties right. around mm. laws or getting them elected. And this was the American organisation, so it didn't even come under that. Mm. Yeah. And so this happened, so you started your fight back. At this point, did you want to return to the charity 
Or did you just want to highlight what actually happened to you and the injustice behind it? To begin with, I was trying to clear my name. And that's how I thought this is, you know, like you do in life when you've got plans, you have a series of, of goals. And my first goal was I need to clear my name. I can't be known as Nick. Remember the charity guy, the Nazi? So I wanted to clear my name on that. <laughs> uh, the best thing that someone called me was a compassionate Nazi. I got a tweet saying, I'll take on board your two decades of working in these tough neighborhoods, supporting kids. You're obviously very compassionate, but you're still a Nazi. You are a compassionate Nazi. <laughs> and I thought about changing my Twitter handle and I thought, no, I, I, don't, want, I don't want to go for the rest of my life with the word Nazi in, in my Twitter handle yeah. and stuff like that. But I thought it was quite funny. So I went to clear my name first of all. And when I could see that was happening and I was getting, I mean, I literally got maybe a thousand personal messages on Facebook, on Twitter, from all over the UK, from France, from Australia, from America, saying we've seen it in the press. We've got our full support, anything we can do. I had the one American, um, English businessman um, offered to pay my wages in case I was really struggling. Um, I was getting so much support. Um, that changed my perspective then. I thought if I had any doubts that what I'd done was right, and I did have doubts on what I'd done was right, because when all of a sudden you face that, it's like, and I am a reflective person, so I was thinking, maybe I am wrong. Maybe I did cross the line here. Why would all these people be against me? And no one for me. That was another strange thing. No one, in that first couple of weeks, no one came to my defence. No one. I had a couple of emails and phone calls saying I'd like to, but after I see what's happened to you, Nick, I don't do anything public, but just letting you know that I am on your side, just not publicly. Um, and then when all that happened, I thought, oh, I might be able to get a charity back here. Um, so it was a secondary thought. It wasn't my initial thought. And then when I got a solicitor's Keystone Law involved and they looked at everything, they went, this looks like an open and shut case to us, mate. They said, we really think you'll be back in the seat this time next week. Oh, really? And they were spot on. Wow. And what would you say to people who invariably say cancel culture, it's a myth, it doesn't exist, you know, we're, you know, you're free to say whatever you want. Um, we need to define what cancel culture is because it's become this term for everything now. So if I am sick of your posts on Twitter mm. and I block you, that's not cancel culture. That's me just sick of your tweets. But people that are going, oh, he's blocked me. You're talking about cancel culture, but yet you blocked me. Oh, that's not cancel culture. And it's not cancel culture if it's, you know, you're an actor, and also I don't like your political views. And it's not cancel culture to say, do you know what? I used to be a fan of yours, but I'm not now. That's not cancel culture. Cancel culture is when you say, I don't like what you're saying or what you think, and I'm going to try to destroy your life. I'm going to go after, if you work for someone, I'm going after them so they know. I'm going to go after, you put on Twitter that your sister works for, Virgin Trains. Well, I'm going to go after your sister on Virgin Trains now because I'm, I'm going to I'll destroy you. If you're an actor, you know, uh, I want to set a petition up that we all boycott the film you had a four-second role in. And I'm going to make sure that all the other directors, producers know if you're in anything that a load of trouble comes with that. That's cancel culture where you try to destroy someone's life. Not when you say, I don't, I don't want to hear you, mate. So therefore... I'm going to do something so I don't hear you. That's perfectly acceptable. That's not cancel culture. It's when you want to destroy someone. And 
having experienced it yourself, do you yep. think it's more prevalent than we actually like to think in the UK? Um, I'm bound to say yes, because I'm more attuned to it now and I see it more. Mm. I probably didn't see it as much before. But you two gents who do this podcast and speak to lots of people, you're probably in a better position to, to know. It looks like it's happening more, especially since Black Lives Matter, because we've suddenly got this new justice warrior type now who weren't mm. involved a few months ago. And it's easier to do it now. And it's easier to do it because every one of those individuals completely believes that they're 100% right and that they're on God's side that they're on Martin Luther King's side, that if Gandhi and Mandela were here today, they're on their side and they 100% believe that. And what we believe, people like us, is I think I'm right. I'm not saying I'm 100% right. I think I'm right based on what I've read and what I've seen and what I've felt. And I'm quite happy listening to somebody else in case they can change my mind or in case they know something I don't know. So it's hard to have a fair fight when we think we're right and they know, they know they're right. And it's an unfair fight. I think a lot of it is what we talked about earlier. And you sort of cringed a little bit when I suggested that um, the people who sacked you were cowards. But I think, not speaking about them personally, but more broadly, I think that's a big part of it because... In your case, 450 people signing a petition, you could get 450 people to sign a petition about the color of trains, right? That, anything. But it seems like a lot. And then at that point, people have to have some backbone to say, actually, we don't care that 450 people who we don't know, who, who have no identity verification, we don't even know if it's one person who created 450 accounts. Could be, right? It takes some backbone to stand up against it. And I think part of the reason that there is cancellation happening is that people are just afraid. Good people. Good people are just afraid. So let's talk about the process further down the line, which is you get the lawyers involved. They tell you it's an open and shut case. What happens from there? So the board of trustees, uh, the solicitor votes them, um, outlining their mistakes and where they were wrong. Um, and that I was going to sue them for unfair dismissal. Uh, sorry, breach of contract. Mm. Mm. Um, upon hearing that and seeing the evidence and obviously then then getting legal advice themselves, which I should, probably should have done <laughs> before, um, they realized the mistake um, and decided to resign. So they appointed another board who I approved. A new board was appointed and then they reinstated me. Wow. And so you're, you're back where you should rightfully be at the home of your charity. Yep. And what advice would you give to people about speaking out? About criticising? We all things? need to speak out. And when you were just saying then about cowardice, we're all guilty of that. We're all guilty. None of us do enough. Even now, I see things. I think, should I comment or shouldn't have comment? And I don't comment on anything, even though part of me wants to comment on that because I believe in something. And I like to think at the moment, I'm probably still a little bit, not vulnerable, I'm probably still a little bit, probably still a bit damaged. Mm. And it's, could I mentally cope with a double outbreak? And it's like, oh, do you know what? I don't want to give that a go. So maybe in a couple of months' time, 
when I'm a bit stronger, um, a bit more solid than I do, and hence why I'm on your show. This is the real reason why I'm here, because I want to speak out. I want to be a voice for everybody else. I want to show people and tell people this can be beaten, and it can be beaten fairly easy. Nobody puts up. When I did my, my fought back, no one, no one fought back against me. They didn't rise back up, just like school bullies. When, when it's 10 of us, we're going to pick on you something awful. All of a sudden, you're fighting back. Oh, someone ease you around the corner to bully. Let's go have a go at them because you're just causing too many problems for me now as a bully. I'm going to pick someone else. Nobody, when I start the fight back, no one, there was no negative comments on social media. No one's emailed me to complain that I'm back in post. No one's emailed the board saying, why did you take that Nazi back? They shut up. Once that Mail on Sunday article hit, every single one of them shut up because all of a sudden there's thousands of people online in support of me. And they all went, oh, we're not taking on a crowd. It's mm. too dangerous. We know what it's like when you're a crowd and what you mm. can do to people. That's a bigger crowd. We're not taking them on. So we all need to stand up. What we don't need is martyrs. I don't want people losing their jobs, standing up over something that was trivial or something you couldn't change. I, you know, we don't need more martyrs out there who are self-sacrificing themselves, but everyone can do a bit. And if everyone just doesn't, don't know, we're the silent majority. The vast 90% of the country agree with us. If everyone in just did a tiny bit and you add all that up, that's like a tidal wave of support. And we can crush the dissent that we get. And, and these lunatics, we can crush them in a nice way. And... That's what we need to do. Everybody needs to do their bit. So if you read something on Twitter and you think, yeah, yeah, I can retweet that, retweet it or like it. If you want to comment on something, comment on something, but be sensible. What we don't need is our version of those nutcases out mm. there because all you do then is you'll, you give them another reason to, to double down and say, no, look at that. They're, some of them are racist. We don't need to play their game the way they go. We need to beat them. First of all, with emotion, not facts. They don't want to hear facts. You can give them all the facts you want. They're running on emotion. Mm. So we need, we need to tackle them with emotion. And we need to say, this is what we're trying to achieve. We want to achieve the same things as you. A fairer society. No racism. Lots of opportunity for everybody. No homeless people. No, we, we, we want the same things as you. Of course we do. But these are our ways of getting there. With some of your ideas and some of our ideas, we can get there as opposed to saying we're just going to attack them for attacking mm. them, saying mm. we need to have a better strategy of how we're going to do this. And I'm sort of formulating one at the moment. So I'm either going to write some articles or maybe a book or something about how we do it. And it's, and it's not about attacking them. Yeah. Because the vast majority of them are decent people. We need to pull them onto our side. What we don't need to do is to be knocking them off one at a time. And beating them let's pull them all on our side and then you've got a couple of cent of marxist lunatics that we can all turn around and then just mock so it's about being a compassionate nazi, being a compassionate <laughs> nazi. Yeah, yeah, exactly. when you run for office that can be a slogan mate um no i agree with you and i i think the point you're making is very important which is uh, i and i've been thinking about this for the last few months which is if this is a war which is it's kind of been set up it can't be a war. That's my point. It can't be, because all we're doing is, 
It's a civil war. Yeah, yeah. That's we, we all lose in a civil war. Yeah. This can't. This has to be. I hate the word war. I hate. I hate the term um, culture war. Yeah. Um, because what we're doing is subconsciously we're setting each other up in camps. Yeah. Mm. And you know, America now is getting close to a civil, a physical civil war. Mm. We've got mm. people killing each other now. This needs to be a war of ideas. Mm. It needs. It needs to be a war of emotion. What it really needs to be is a conversation, mate. And that's what yeah. you're saying is you have to be sensible yeah. so that other people don't get put off yeah. so you can actually have a conversation. I don't think we're there yet for conversation. No, we're that, not. That's, why, that's why I'm saying to people, we need, we need to tackle them with positive emotion because they're running on emotion. Yeah. And they're not willing to listen to facts or have a conversation or to give you the benefit of doubt that used to and not racist. So if they can't give you the benefit, I give everyone a benefit of doubt mm. that they're not a racist unless they prove me wrong. I give everyone the benefit of doubt that they're a decent person unless they prove me wrong. And that's how we should treat everybody in society, but everyone got emotion. So we need, I'm not sure how we do it yet, but having conversations and telling facts, we can do that to the cows come on. And would you change anything about your experience or what you went through? I would have, the blog would have been wrote better. I didn't realize how much scrutiny it was going to get. Mm. Mm. So even though there's nothing in there that I regret writing, as you know, you can word things slightly differently. I could have made points slightly better. So I don't regret writing. There's nothing there I'm ashamed of either. But I could have wrote it a little bit more academically, a little bit more as if I was an English lit major or something. I could have made it a bit better, but I didn't because... I'm just a kid off a council estate and I just had to spare half an hour, read a website and thought, oh, right, on this and did. So that could have been better. I'd have changed that. Hmm. Um, no, I'm not one for regrets. Yeah. I'm not one to, you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda. No, it, it, done's done. I need to learn from what I did because you're a fool if you don't learn from things that go wrong in your life. So I need to learn from that. But I don't regret any of it. It's taken me to a place where I am now. Um, it's given me, it's given me a new challenge in life. So I'm still going to work for the charity, but I'm looking at going part-time because I want to start dedicating some of my time, doing a lot more writing on social issues. I want to get involved in policy. I want to drive some of the agendas and be an influencer as opposed to helping a few thousand kids a year, which is great and amazing. Mm. But if I can influence policy and I can help, bring down something like Black Lives Matter, the organization, not the phrase, hmm. then I can have a bigger impact and do more good. Well, let's talk about that because I think we, if we put a bow on your story, there's a happy ending yep. uh, and that's a good thing. And congratulations to you on that uh, and to all the people who supported you. Yeah, big thanks to the people who supported me. Mm. Um, you know, Keystone Law, the uh, uh, I say students' union then, but uh, the free speech union were amazing and everybody, everybody messaged me really helped me get through this because I was at a really low place and having having reading weeks of being called an Nazi to then get messages get saying, you know, look at the great things you've done and look at this and look at that and look at this old article that I heard about four years ago where you saved a girl from being sexually abused and, you know, they sent me the article. I thought, I have done some good work. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you start doubting yourself. So they really mm -hmm. helped me. Yeah. So let's talk about the future then, because I think one of the 
most important conversations that we started sort of at the beginning was it was about what made you criticize the organization of BLM, which is you thought their prescriptions for what should happen in inner cities were fundamentally mistaken. Yes. They're fundamentally damaging to people who live in those communities and particularly the vulnerable young people with whom you work. Yeah. So what are the things that people don't understand about inner city, young people, knife crime, gun, gun crime, gangs, all of this sort of stuff that you would have experienced dealing with? What do people need to know? We have politicians who watch the show. We have journalists who watch the show. What do they need to understand that they do not understand at the moment? That's a billion dollar question, that one. I think we could do a 10, 10 episode yeah. savings mm. on that. Um, it's just really complicated. Mm. So some of, some of the simple things, one is education. I've just wrote um, an article for the Critic magazine on what I think we need to look at in our education system because one size fits all doesn't work for everybody. So according to government stats, 82% of young people in England who attend school achieve the five GCSEs, which is the government minimum standard. That means 18% don't. It's the 18% who are being failed at school. And we need to look at how do we educate them. And I give a couple of examples of a girl I knew who was a lovely girl. Uh, wasn't very bright, but, but was just a lovely person. And, you know, could achieve in life because of her innate ability of, of making people go, I like her. And we've all met those people. Mm. Mm. And she left school with no qualifications, hardly attended any classes because she just wasn't academic. And Matt, if we had a different school around the corner, that wasn't a dumping ground for academically challenged kids or behavioural challenged kids. This isn't, you know, a pupil referral unit. This is a school your parent chooses for you mm. as opposed to you get sent because it's all about choice. I want parents and kids to have choice. But we could have other schools where young people who are not academically gifted, or it might be, but just don't, are sick of sitting in lessons, and they have a choice. They go to these schools where it's more practical. So I'll still do English maths, things like that. But then, you know, there could be, you know, there could be classes where, they, you know, people could do coding if that's what they want to leave school and do. Um, and this girl, I'll give you an example, where she could have been trained as a chambermaid, hmm. um, was never going to do an academic job, but she could have understood, you know, working, turning up on time, customer service, um, invoicing, simple hotel computer systems. She left school and there's hundreds of hotels in my city centre. She did a job like that. But I bumped into her when she was 17. Now morbidly obese, never had a job and is now unemployable. And we've taken her spark away. She smiled all the time when I knew her. When I met her when she was 17 in the city centre, just walking past, we stopped at the chat. Didn't smile once. We'd, we, whatever was in it, our education system rips out of it. Um, and that's only a small percentage of young people. But that doesn't mean we let them fail just because the vast majority are doing well at school. And those young people are also the young people then who then get dragged into crime, they get groomed, because they get kicked out of school because of the behaviour, or they stop attending school because, you imagine you go to school for 11 years, imagine going to school every day and you're not academically gifted, and every day you sit in a class, and every day they make you feel more and more stupid. Mm. And you see other people getting it, and you can't get it. And you start getting angry, and you start thinking, I'm not coming anymore now. And you start getting disenfranchised, you start thinking society's against you. 
And you wonder why by the time you've left at 15, 16, you're an angry young man. You wonder why we just talked to you for 11 years, made you feel stupid, inadequate, and nobody all those years. But the best intentions, they don't do it on purpose. I get that. And then you wonder why the hang on the streets hanging out. And you wonder why drug dealers going, come here, mate. Want to earn 10 quid? Do you want to do this, this, this? It's like, well, I'm finally being treated like an equal. They're not, but they think I'm being treated like an equal. I could be him. I could be the godfather. I could have this big house. And the odds are, no, you're going to get stabbed in a couple of years' time and end up in jail. But they buy into the dream because our education let them down. That's something we can do. Mm. Um, you know, the way we're kicking kids out of school into the arms of criminal gangs is, is, is tremendous in all the inner cities. And then we've got an issue with our culture. Um, if you look at some of the biggest hits for TV shows over the last couple of years, Peaky Blinders, what's that? Organised crime. Breaking Bad, what's that? Organised crime, drug dealing. We're selling young people the dream of it's a career. Subconsciously, look at the music we listen to, uh, rap music and stuff like that. All negative messages all the time. You know, gangs and drugs and killing and respect. And then we've also got some in the city, culture and family, about not appreciating and looking at the value of education. Um, we've got lots of immigrant families who come in, big on education. Mm. You speak to, you know, a British Chinese kid or Indian kid or Nigerian kid, their kids are going to do well at, at our state comprehensive in a poor area. They're the kids who excel. Their parents are saying, what have you done today? Look at your report card. Mm. Go get the belt. Two Bs, go get the belt. And that's, they're doing really well. To be clear, we're not advocating for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I know what you mean. Yeah. They're yeah, yeah, yeah. strict yeah. on that and yeah. they value education. Yeah. 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 And I remember yeah. once, 20 years ago, sat in a... You're not that compassionate if you've got the belt, <laughs> mate. You've got, to, you've got to stick to your label, compassionate Nazi. We all need discipline. Sure. Um, and I don't condone, you know, go, but I know some families do that. Hmm. Um, I remember sat in, sitting in a house um, talking to a mum once about her daughter who was causing problems in the local chippy bit of racial abuse in local chippy. And I visited the house, sat down and said, no, this can't go on. Uh, these are the consequences for your daughter if this goes on. Um, and I'm sat in this house, nicely decorated, the biggest TV I'd ever seen. Yeah. This was like 15, 20 years ago. I didn't have a flat screen TV at the time. And she had this size of a wall, flat screen TV. It was on benefits. Didn't work. And I'm trying to say she needs to go to school. That's the problem. She goes, well, I never went to school and I did okay. I'm looking at this nice house, all the rent's paid for, everything's paid for, nice big TV. I'm thinking, you have done okay. She's got a point. How, how am I telling this girl mm. that if you don't go to school and get an education, you're going to be there, where her mum's going, I did all right. So part of it's cultural as well. Yeah. So if we're living in those cultures where, you know, we don't value education or we don't value aspiration or we're not saying to our kids, you can be a doctor, you know, or I want you to be a doctor. Or we're saying, I want you to, you know, work here or do this or, or do that. If we're just saying to young people, I don't care what you do. Um, makes no difference to me, mate. So how do you help kids? It's really about giving them a dream. It's 
about building their aspiration. It's about making them believe in themselves. The thing I've heard the most and the thing that upsets me the most is when young people, when I say to young people, what do you want to be? You know, when you, what's your dream? And they go, nothing, I've got a dream. Even, I prefer it when they say I want to be a football player. Hmm. And, you know, we know they're not, but at least I've got a dream. But when you've got young people saying, nothing, hmm. I've got a dream. And you dig down, you speak, so you get to know them over weeks and you find out. And you realise they meant it. What happened to them was they had a dream, they tried stuff, and they either got no support, usually from home or parents or school, or they failed or stumbled, and nobody helped them up, and no one gave them the encouragement to start again. And eventually they learned themselves that if I don't try, I don't fail. But doesn't this go back to fatherlessness? That they've got nobody there to go, Yeah. Come on, pick yourself up. Look, we all fail. And that's, that's what fathers do. So when you come out, you know, you run in the house crying, you've cut your knee. Yeah. Your dad goes, stop being a big baby. You're fine. Get back out there. Where your mum goes, oh, oh, go get the first aid. And your dad goes, oh, your leg's not going to get out. Yeah. That builds resilience in you. You go, all oh, right. And dads come across as cruel sometimes, but they're not cruel. That's what dads do. That's why we need a mum and a dad mm. in less extraordinary circumstances. Yeah. And, you know, when you come home and you're being bullied, your dad doesn't go, we're going to have to speak to school and we know we're going to have to get taxi to pick you up and we're going to have to do this and mm. do that. Your dad goes, all right, well, tomorrow, when the first one comes up to you, you smack him as hard as you can in the face and the others will either run away or you're going to get battered. But I'll tell you what, they won't, they won't mess with you the day after. Because they'll all know someone's getting a, a fist in the nose. Or your dad will walk with you to school. And your dad will threaten them. And they all go, oh, don't mess with him. His dad's mental. Mm. And we've all got different roles. Mm. And that's what we're missing out with fathers. We're missing these young people seeing their dad go out to work every day. In the wind, the snow, the hurricane, getting up at 6, 7 in the morning, not coming back till 6, 7 at night, knackered, sitting down. What's dad? You can play I can't play football with this, son. I'm absolutely shattered. Can't have been working. Oh, but dad, well, do you know why the lights are on? Because I pay the rent and I pay the bills. Do you know why you've just eaten? Because I give your mum money and she goes out and buys food for you. Where does that money come from? It's me working six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours a day. And young people go, right, someone's got to work for me to have stuff. And these are all the lessons. We used to teach our children. And there weren't lessons as in we, we knew we were teaching them. They were just in heaven. Mm -hmm. But all that's gone. And especially young boys are just drifting. And they're looking for that father figure, that someone to look up to and someone to respect. And they're finding it in negative male role models outside the house. Mm -hmm. Do you know, I listen to you and you're so right. And I listened to you with the Twitter brain on and I'm going, we're going to get cancelled so fucking hard for this because these things have become unsayable. <laughs> I, was, I was a teacher in, in East London, a very deprived part of East London in Newham. And I looked at the boys who were struggling in my class and I'd be like, no dad, no dad, no dad, no dad. Yes. The vast majority of them. And it's not their fault, those kids. It's because, as you said, they've been failed 
by their fathers. Because, it, and people don't want to say this, but if you have a kid, that is your responsibility. Your responsibility. I can't, we can't say it enough. Yeah. It's your responsibility. And men who abandon their children should be publicly shamed. You should be ashamed of sitting in the pub and saying, oh, yeah, I've got two kids. Oh, oh yeah, I, I, I've not seen them in years. That should be like saying, well, yeah, I did four years in jail for, for paedophilia. It should be almost the same as that because you're damaging your own children. Mm. You might not see it, and it goes a long time, and it's emotional, but you're damaging your own flesh and blood. And if you don't want to have your own flesh and blood, they're called condoms. So we've got a choice. Mm. And that's not to say that every young person who doesn't have a father in his home is destined to be a criminal. That's not the case, because I don't have a father in my home. Mm. So it's not to say, you know, that happens. But when you look at the overall stats and who's failing and the years I've spent working with young people, it's like, oh, yeah, again, 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 and we see it. And there's a wonderful book by, um, called, it's called The Boy Crisis by, I think it's Warren Favell. Have yes. you read it? Yes. You, you need to, if, you, you, if you've not read it, you need to read it. It's a wonderful book. Mm. And it talks about all of this. Uh, before we go, I just one question I want to ask Nick. What advice would you give to someone who is going through an experience similar to yours? What should they do? What should they not do? First thing is join the Free Speech Union because they're great and they can help you. Um, don't ever apologize for something you're not sorry for because I wouldn't do it. So if, you, if you've done something and you know it's wrong, then you need to apologize. It's called being a decent human being. But if you've done nothing wrong, don't apologize. And then, depending on your situation, you need to work about. You need to work out how you can fight back, um, and try to use some of the tactics that they've used against you for you, such as social media, such as online petitions. Seek out people like me and other people um, who have got a presence online, and let's get a petition started. For you, it might not work, but make you feel better when 18,000 mm. people have signed it. And don't do what I did the first week, which was to accept defeat. Um, if The biggest mistake they made with me was they gave me nothing else to lose. And when you, when you put someone in the corner who's got nothing else to lose, you either die or you fight your way out of that corner. Mm. And if they've done the same to you, then that's your choice. Either die in that corner or fight your way out because you've got nothing else to lose. One of our favorite quotes on this show is the Fight Club quote. I don't know if you've seen that movie, which is, yes. it's, only, it's only once you've lost everything that you're free to do anything. Mm -hmm. And thank you for coming on the show, Nick. Thank you for taking the stand. I'm glad you landed on your feet. And it sounds to me like there's some really great things ahead in the future for you and as a result for young people in this country because I really think you can make a huge contribution to improving their lives. And I hope people who watch this and people who listen to this who have the ability to change things take what you've said on board. With that in mind, as always, we've got one more question for you. Which is, what's the one thing we're not talking about as a society, but we really should be? We're talking about a little bit, but not anything like we should. And it's the knife crime epidemic that we've got. Mm -hmm. How have we got hundreds of young people stabbing each other to death every year and it seems as if we are lost for an answer. It, it baffles me. 
part of it is we don't understand. People who tackle it obviously understand it, but the vast majority of people don't understand it. Mm. You know, people think it's really drug turf wars and it tends not to be about drug turf wars. It tends to be about respect. It tends to be about, have you seen what he put on Twitter about you, about your mum? Are you going to have that? I wouldn't have it. If he said that to me about my mum, I'd knife him. And all of a sudden, that young person then feels like there's nothing else I can do now. All my friends are saying, I wouldn't have that. And then they're backed into a corner and then we have violence. And we're not, we're not looking at it seriously enough and we're, and we're not tackling it enough because of the racial element we have. And everyone, again, is paranoid about looking at it because it's predominantly young black men stabbing other young black men. And I had a thought the other day, which I've not really looked into, and it just popped in my head. 100, 150 years ago in the UK, we had a problem of duelling, and that was all with respect. So we'd have, you know, sir, you said, what about my, my, my wife? I will see you tomorrow at dawn. Mm-hmm. And we had people stabbing and shooting each other to death all with respect. We need to look at why that happened and how we tackled it and other countries, how have we tackled young men taking offence, which is easily done in every culture throughout history, and resorting to violence, which is what young men do. Mm. So this is a new problem. Yeah. But we, we don't, I can't see anywhere where we're looking at it and coming up with solutions. We just seem to be, all we seem to do is, is an outcry. How can this happen? And I think it's a shame. Well, Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show. If people want to find you on Twitter. Twitter, Facebook, all those places, Nick Buckley, MBE. Perfect stuff. Uh, Thank you so much for watching the show, guys. We hope you enjoy it. Please uh, follow us on Twitter and all the usual socials. And if you want to see a show of ours, Wednesday and Sunday are episodes. Tuesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday are our live streams. And they always go out 7 p.m. UK time. See you soon. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.